Section 27 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Continued 6. Deep in a thicket from which the evening was slowly dissolving, a thrush sang four liquid notes. Like the shape of her mouth, he thought, feeling the heat of his pain become cool with the cooling of sunset. The small stream murmured busily like a faint incantation, and repeated alder shoots leaned over it, narcissus-like. The thrush, disturbed, flashed a modest streak of brown deeper into the woods, and sang again. Mosquitoes spun about him, unresisted. He seemed to get ease from their sharp irritation. Something else to think about. I could have made up to her. I would make up to her for everything that ever hurt her, so that when she remembered things that once hurt her, she'd say, Was this I? If I could just have told her. Only I couldn't seem to think of what to say. Me that talks all the time, being stuck for words. Aimlessly he followed the stream. Soon it ran among violet shadows, among willows, and he heard a louder water. Parting the willows, he came upon an old mill-race and a small lake, calmly repeating the calm sky and the opposite dark trees. He saw fish gleaming dully upon the earth, and the buttocks of a man. "'Lost something?' he asked, watching ripples spread from the man's submerged arm. The other heaved himself to his hands and knees, looking up over his shoulder. "'Drop my tobacco.' he replied in an unemphatic drawl. Don't happen to have none on you, do you? Got a cigarette, if that'll do you any good. Gilligan offered his pack, and the other, sitting back on his heels, took one. Much obliged. Feller likes a little smoke once in a while, don't he? Feller likes a lot of little things in this world once in a while. The other guffawed, not comprehending, but suspecting a reference to sex. Well, I ain't got any of that, but I got the next thing to it. He rose, lean as a hound, and from beneath a willow clump he extracted a gallon jug. With awkward formality he tendered it. Allers take a mite with me when I go fishing, he explained. Seems to make the fish bite more and the mosquitoes less. Gilligan took the jug awkwardly. What in hell did you do with it? Here, let me show you his host said, relieving him of it, crooking his first finger through the handle. The man raised the jug with a round, back-handed sweep to his horizontal upper arm, craning his neck until his mouth met the mouth of the vessel. Gilligan could see his pumping Adam's apple against the pale sky. He lowered the jug and drew the back of his hand across his mouth. "'That's how she's done,' he said, handing the thing to Gilligan. Gilligan tried it with inferior success, feeling the stuff chill upon his chin, sopping the front of his waistcoat. But in his throat it was like fire. It seemed to explode pleasantly as soon as it touched his stomach. He lowered the vessel, coughing. Good God, what is it? The other laughed hoarsely, slapping his thighs. Never drunk no corn for, ain't you? But how does she feel inside? Better now, don't she? Gilligan admitted that she did. He could feel all his nerves like electric filaments in a bulb. He was conscious of nothing else. 
Then it became a warmth and an exhilaration. He raised the jug again and did better. I'll go to Atlanta tomorrow and find her. Catch her before she takes a train out of there, he promised himself. I will find her. She cannot escape me forever. The other drank again and Gilligan lit a cigarette. He too knew a sense of freedom, of being master of his destiny. I'll go to Atlanta tomorrow. Find her. Make her marry me, he repeated. Why did I let her go? But why not tonight? Sure, why not tonight? I can find her. I know I can, even in New York. Funny, I never thought of that before. His legs and arms had no sensation. His cigarette slipped from his nerveless fingers, and reaching for the tiny coal, he wavered, finding that he could no longer control his body. Hell, I ain't that drunk, he thought. But he was forced to admit that he was. Say, what was that stuff, anyway? I can't hardly stand up. The other guffawed again, flattered. Ain't she, though? Make her myself, and she's good. You'll get used to it, though. Take another. He drank it like water with unction. Damn if I do. I gotta get to town. Take a little sup. I'll put you on the road all right. If two drinks make me feel this good, I'll scream if I take another, he thought. But his friend insisted, and he drank again. Let's go, he said, returning the jug. The man, carrying her, circled the leg. Gilligan blundered behind him among cypress knees in occasional mud. After a time, he regained some control over his body, and they came to a break in the willows, and a road slashed into the red sandy soil. Here ye be, friend. Just keep right to the road. Tent over a mile. All right. Much obliged to you. You sure got a son of a gun of a drink there. She's all right, ain't she? The other agreed. Well, good night. Gilligan extended his hand, and the other grasped it formally and limply, and pumped it once from a rigid elbow. Take care of yourself. I'll try to, Gilligan promised. The other's gangling, malaria-ridden figure faded again among the willows. The road gashed across the land, stretched silent and empty before him, and below the east was a rumorous promise of moonlight. He trod in dust between dark trees like spilled ink upon the pale, clear page of the sky. And soon the moon was more than a promise. He saw the rim of it sharpening the tips of trees, saw soon the whole disk bland as a saucer. Whippoorwills were lost like coins among the trees, and one blundered awkwardly from the dust almost under his feet. The whiskey died away in the loneliness. Soon his temporarily mislaid despair took its place again. After a while, passing beneath crossed skeleton arms on a pole, he crossed the railroad and followed a lane between negro cabins, smelling the intimate odor of negroes. The cabins were dark, but from them came soft, meaningless laughter, and slow, unemphatic voices, cheerful yet somehow filled with all the old despairs of time and breath. Under the moon, quavering with the passion of spring and flesh, among whitewashed walls papered inwardly with old newspapers, 
something pagan, using the white man's conventions as it used his clothing, hushed and powerful, not knowing its own power. Sweet chariot, come and for to carry me home. Three young men passed him, shuffling in the dust, aping their own mute shadows in the dusty road, sharp with the past sweat of labor. You may be fast, but you can't last, cause your mama gone slow you down. He trod on with the moon in his face, seeing the coupled clock squatting like a benignant god on the courthouse against the sky, staring across the town with four faces. He passed yet more cabins where sweet, mellow voices called from door to door. A dog bade the moon, clear and sorrowful, and a voice cursed it in soft syllables. Sweet chariot, come and for to carry me home. Yes, Jesus, come and for to carry me home. The church loomed a black shadow with a silver roof, and he crossed the lawn passing beneath slumbrous ivied walls. In the garden, the mockingbird that lived in the magnolia rippled the silence, and along the moony wall of the rectory, from ledge to ledge, something crawled shapelessly. What in hell, thought Gilligan, seeing it pause at Emmy's window. He leaped flower beds swiftly and noiselessly. Here was a convenient gutter, and Jones did not hear him until he had almost reached the window to which the other clung. They regarded each other precariously, the one clinging to the window, the other to the gutter. What are you trying to do? Gilligan asked. Climb up here a little further, and I'll show you, Jones told him, snarling his yellow teeth. Come away from there, fellow. Damn my soul, if here ain't the squire of dames again. We all hoped you'd gone off with that black woman. Are you coming down, or am I coming up there and throw you down? I don't know, am I? Or are you? For reply, Gilligan heaved himself up, grasping the window ledge. Jones, clinging, tried to kick him in the face, but Gilligan caught his foot, releasing his grasp on the gutter. For a moment they swung like a great pendulum against the side of the house, and Jones's hold on the window was torn loose, and they plunged together into a bed of tulips. Jones was first on his feet, and kicking Gilligan in the side, he fled. Gilligan sprang after him and overtook him smartly. This time it was hyacinths. Jones fought like a woman kicking, clawing, biting, but Gilligan hauled him to his feet and knocked him down. Jones rose again and was felled once more. This time he crawled, and grasping Gilligan's knees pulled him down. Jones kicked himself free and rising fled anew. Gilligan sat up, contemplating pursuit, but gave it up as he watched Jones's unwieldy body leaping away through the moonlight. Jones doubled the church at a good speed, and he let himself out at the gate. He saw no pursuit, so his pace slackened to a walk. Beneath quiet elms, his breath became easier. 
branches motionlessly leafed were still against stars and mopping his face and neck with his handkerchief he walked along a deserted street at a corner he stopped to dip his handkerchief in a trough for watering horses bathing his face and hands the water reduced the pain of the blows he'd received and as he paced fatly on from shadow to moonlight and then to shadow again dogged by his own skulking and shapeless shadow the calm still night washed his recent tribulation completely from his mind from shadowed porches beyond oaks and maples elms and magnolias from beyond screening vines starred with motionless pallid blossoms came snatches of hushed talk and sweet broken laughter male and female created he them young jones was young too yet ah that spring should vanish with the rose that youth's sweet-scented manuscript should close the nightingale that in the branches sang all whence and whither flown again who knows wish i had a girl to-night he sighed the moon was serene ah moon of my delight that knows no wane the moon of heaven is rising once again how oft hereafter rising shall she look through this same garden after me in vain but how spring itself is imminent with autumn with death as autumn and the moon of death draw nigh the sad long days of summer herein lie and she too warm in sorrow neath the trees turns to night and weeps and longs to die and in the magic of spring and youth and moonlight jones raised his clear sentimental tenor sweetheart 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 his slow shadow blotted out the pen strokes of iron pickets but when he had passed the pen strokes were still there upon the dark soft grass clumps of petunia and cannas broke the smooth stretch of lawn and above the bronze foliage of magnolias the serene columns of a white house rose more beautiful in simplicity than death jones leaned his elbows on a gate staring at his lumpy shadow at his feet smelling cape jasmine hearing a mockingbird somewhere somewhere jones sighed it was a sigh of pure ennui seven on the rector's desk was a letter addressed to mr julian lowe blank street san francisco california telling him of her marriage and of her husband's death it had been returned by the post office department stamped removed present address unknown eight gilligan sitting in the hyacinth bed watched jones's flight he ain't so bad for a fat one he admitted rising emmy'll sure have to sleep single to-night the mockingbird in the magnolia as though it had waited for hostilities to cease sang again what in hell have you got to sing about gilligan shook his fist at the tree the bird ignored him and he brushed dark earth from his clothes anyway he soliloquized i feel better wish i could have held the bastard though he passed from the garden with a last look at the ruined hyacinth bed the rector looming met him at the corner of the house beneath the hushed slumbrous passion of the silver tree 
That you, Joe? I thought I heard noises in the garden. You did. I was trying to beat hell out of that fat one, but I couldn't hold the so I couldn't hold him. He lit out. Fighting? My dear boy. It wasn't no fight. You was too busy getting away. Takes two folks to fight, Padre. Fighting doesn't settle anything, Joe. I'm sorry you resorted to it. Was anyone hurt? No. Worse luck, Gilligan replied ruefully, thinking of his soiled clothes and his abortive vengeance. I'm glad of that. But boys will fight, eh, Joe? Donald fought in his day. You damn right he did, Reverend. I bet he was a son of a gun in his day. The rector's heavy-lined face took a flared match. Between his cupped hands he sucked at his pipe. He walked slowly in the moonlight across the lawn toward the gate. Gilligan followed. I feel restless tonight, he explained. Shall we walk a while? They paced slowly beneath arched and moon-bitten trees, scuffing their feet in shadows of leaves. Under the moon, lights in houses were yellow futilities. Well, Joe, things are back to normal again. People come and go, but Emmy and I seem to be like the biblical rocks. What are your plans? Gilligan lit a cigarette with ostentatiousness, hiding his embarrassment. Well, Padre, to tell the truth, I ain't got any. If it's all the same to you, I think I'll stay on with you a while longer. And welcome, dear boy, the rector answered heartily. Then he stopped and faced the other keenly. God bless you, Joe. Was it on my account you decided to stay? Gilligan averted his face guiltily. Well, Padre. Not at all. I won't have it. You have already done all you can. This is no place for a young man, Joe. The rector's bald forehead and his blobby nose were intersecting planes in the moonlight. His eyes were cavernous. Gilligan knew suddenly all the old sorrows of the race, black or yellow or white, and he found himself telling the rector all about her. Tut, the divine said, this is bad, Joe. He lowered himself hugely to the edge of the sidewalk, and Gilligan sat beside him. Circumstance moves in marvelous ways, Joe. I thought you'd have said God, Reverend. God is circumstance, Joe. God is in this life. We know nothing about the next. That will take care of itself in good time. The kingdom of God is in man's own heart, the book says. Ain't that a kind of funny doctrine for a parson to get off? Remember, I'm an old man, Joe. Too old for bickering or bitterness. We make our own heaven or hell in this world. Who knows? Perhaps when we die we may not be required to go anywhere, nor do anything at all. That would be heaven or other people make our heaven and hell for us. The divine put his heavy arm across Gilligan's shoulder. You're suffering from disappointment, but this will pass away. The saddest thing about love, Joe, is that not only the love cannot last forever, but even the heartbreak is soon forgotten. How does it go? Men have died and worms have eaten them, but not for love. No, no, as Gilligan would have interrupted, I know that is an unbearable belief, but all truth is unbearable. Do we not both suffer at this moment from the facts of division and death? Gilligan knew shame, bothering him now, me with fancied disappointment. 
the rector spoke again. I think it would be a good idea for you to stay after all until you make your future plans, so let's consider it closed, eh? Suppose we walk further, unless you're tired. Gilligan rose in effusive negation. After a while, the quiet, tree-tunneled street became a winding road, and leaving the town behind them, they descended and then mounted a hill, cresting the hill beneath the moon, seeing the world breaking away from them into dark, moon-slivered ridges above valleys where mist hung slumbrous. They passed a small house, sleeping among climbing roses. Beyond it, an orchard slept the night away in symmetrical rows, squatting and pregnant. Willard has good fruit, the divine murmured. The road dropped on again, descending between reddish gashes, and across a level moonlit space, broken by a clump of saplings, came a pure quivering chord of music, wordless and far away. They're holding services. Negroes, the rector explained. They walked on in the dust, passing neat, tidy houses, dark with slumber. An occasional group of Negroes passed them, bearing lighted lanterns that jetted vain little flames futilely into the moonlight. No one knows why they do that, the divine replied to Gilligan's question. Perhaps it is to light their churches with. The singing drew nearer and nearer. At last, crouching among a clump of trees beside the road, they saw the shabby church with its canting travesty of a spire. Within it was a soft glow of kerosene serving only to make the darkness and the heat thicker, making thicker the imminence of sex after harsh labor among the mooned land, and from it welled the crooning, submerged passion of the dark race. It was nothing, it was everything. Then it swelled to an ecstasy, taking the white man's words as readily as it took his remote god, and made a personal father of him. Feed thy sheep, O Jesus, all the longing of mankind for a oneness with something somewhere. Feed thy sheep, O Jesus. The rector and Gilligan stood side by side in the dusty road. The road went on under the moon, vaguely dissolving without perspective. Worn-out, red-gutted fields were now alternate splashes of soft black and silver. Trees had each a silver nimbus save those moonward from them, which were sharp as bronze. Feed thy sheep, O Jesus. The voices rose full and soft. There was no organ. No organ was needed, as above the harmonic passion of bass and baritone soared a clear soprano of women's voices like a flight of gold and heavenly birds. They stood together in the dust, the rector in his shapeless black, and Gilligan in his new hard surge, listening, seeing the shabby church become beautiful with mellow longing, passionate and sad. Then the singing died, fading away along the mooned land, inevitable with tomorrow and sweat, with sex and death and damnation, and they turned townward under the moon, feeling dust in their shoes. The End of Section 27 And the End of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner Read in Entirety by Sandra near Montreal 2022